Thanks for checking out this Church in the City podcast. For more information, please visit www.churchinthecity.us. Thanks, Steve. Good morning, everybody. Uh, I don't know if anybody got a picture of that, but uh, I tried to dress like Steve today, just so that nobody uh, would be thrown off. But uh, (laughs) good morning. Um, I just want to say welcome to any of you who are uh, here for the first time or you're recently new to the church. We're really glad that you're here with us worshiping this morning. So welcome again. Uh, Again, my name is Nate. It's wonderful to see all your lovely faces this morning and your smiles. So um, I think that Easter Sunday is an interesting interesting thing and and in one way, an easy day to preach, right? Clark preached on Friday night at our Good Friday gathering for those of you who are there and I felt like Clark was, uh, you know, setting the ball and I get to come and spike it. So I, I feel like I get the easy job today in a sense. Um, but I feel like today, you know, the story of Christ, his death and his resurrection is perhaps the most told story ever, right? So why today would we then retell a story that you may have already heard, and that m- most of you probably have already heard. Um, how many of you guys like uh, movies, specifically superhero movies? I'm looking for Mel's hand. There it is. Okay. Wow, that was like, that was like almost all of you guys, right? Okay, cool. Um, why do you guys watch superhero movies? Don't you know who's going to win? How many superhero movies have you watched? And I'm not a, I don't claim to be an authority on the subject, but how many superheroes have you watched where superhero loses? I mean, maybe there's like one where they lose and there's a sequel or something. I don't know. But like, you pretty much know the outcome in a sense. So why do we watch them? Why do you spend two hours of your life watching this story unfold when you probably have a good idea of who's going to win? It's a little bit of what we're doing this morning, right? But I think there is great value to retelling and experiencing the story. Ask any 10-year-old boy about the last superhero movie they saw. Say, hey man, uh, or actually, here, let's let's put a little, who's going to be the first to tell me who this is right here? Batman. Okay, ask any any kid about the last superhero movie they watched. What are they going to do? They're going to say, Oh, did you see the part where so-and-so did this? Did you see what he did? Did you see how he defeated the enemy? <laughs> right? To, to those who are experiencing the story, it's not just about the outcome. It's not just the fact of who wins. It's this how did this happen. And wasn't that amazing <laughs> how the victory was won. And there's, this, there's something that happens to us emotionally. We experience something when we, when we watch a movie or we watch a mystery and there's the resolution and all that kind of stuff. Why did God choose to write a story to us? We've been teaching an equip class on Wednesday nights about understanding the big picture of the Bible as a story of God. He is the main character. It is about him. And the story unfolds throughout history. And today we are... We are looking at one part of that story, which happens to be the crux of the matter, right? The most important part of the story. And so I want to retell the story today because I believe that 
Maybe some will hear it for the first time. I hope so. But also, I think we can all hear it for the first time again, in a sense. I had a professor who said one of the best ways to read the Bible is to always read it as if you're reading it for the first time. It's not a, not a trickery thing, but it's a, it's a getting your mind into it and, and letting it hit you again, like a ton of bricks, <laughs> you know? Letting the revelation hit you again. And I also believe just as, uh, you know, that, that child who loves that superhero movie, or the adult that loves the superhero movie, let's be honest, um, there's something about the experience that, that resonates in our hearts. And I believe retelling the story today will give us opportunity to... Uh, invite our heart. I, I think God wants to invite our hearts to respond to him, to respond to him again, or to respond to him for the first time. Okay, so um, we're going to get into this story, but before we do, I want to pick up a little bit of where we left off from Good Friday, right? Um, Clark, took, Clark spoke a bit about the brokenness of our world on Friday night. And uh, things were left a little unresolved, even though we knew, you know, what was coming. And I think it's important that we, that we remember uh, that, that feeling of, of the brokenness and, you know, Christ has been crucified and the weekend, you know, think, put yourself in the shoes of these people in the first century who, who didn't quite understand what was going on or what was going to happen. And there's this tension. And I think we can all resonate with that. I think that we would all say that um, in some way or another, we are longing for something that is unfulfilled. We're longing for something that is better than it is today. Um, so I want to ask a few questions as, as I preach this morning. Uh, and so the first question is this. Um, do you need an overcomer? I think we've all experienced in our world, like I was saying, that longing for something better, longing for something uh, that, is, that is right and true. And, and this sense of... of Utopia, in a sense, this dream of a better world. Uh, that 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 word utopia came from a book. It was written by Thomas More in the 1500s, and and he wrote a book about this island where everything was great. <laughs> everything was great. There was peace. There was good government. There was you know all this stuff, justice, all these things, and then he named it Utopia. Does anyone know what the word means? Utopia means nowhere. I don't, you, oh, you said no. Okay. You're almost right. You got half of it right. <laughs> you got half of it. It means no place. So he's writing about this idyllic place, and he says, it's not there. <laughs> there is no place. I haven't read the book, but I'm interested. I don't know if anyone has. <laughs> Sounds interesting. Um, I want for a moment to th- for you guys to think about the efforts that we take on as humans to make the world a better place. Okay? I'm, I'm going to put a few symbols up on the screen just to get our thoughts going. Um, we humans have taken many ways to make the world better, right? So we've got some symbols up here. Medicine, government, uh, economics, education, science. These are all ways we try to improve things. We're trying to resolve some of the problems that we all know are there. You know, some of the efforts of medicine are trying to alleviate sickness, right? This is good stuff. It's very good uh, endeavors that we do. I want to ask you a question, though. 
about these things. Are any of these things overcoming that which is causing the problems that they are addressing? Is medicine overcoming death? (laughs) Surely it's helping us. It's alleviating pain, suffering, all these kinds of things. And I know there's people who believe that medicine will someday overcome death. But is it truly overcoming the problem that we all face? Is government really overcoming uh, crime and war and injustice? Surely it's helping in ways. Surely there are... There are great endeavors in government and all these kinds of things. But, but is it overcoming that thing within us as humans that causes strife? That causes us to hurt each other? That causes nations and governments to war? And on and on. Do, are any of these things overcoming the root issue with which, uh, th- that, of, that is sourcing the problems that they are addressing? I think, I think we could argue No. <laughs> I think we can argue that, that these are all good things, and many of you guys are doing these things and working in these fields, and those are great things. But at the end of the day, we have to be clear that man is in need of an overcomer. You know, the Bible supports just this experience that we have. The Bible talks about in the book of Romans that there's a problem of sin. In, chapter, in Romans 3, it, said, it talks about we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in Romans 6, it talks about how the wages of our sin is death. The proper payment for the, for the sin. That's what, we, that's what we deserve for. That's what we have earned because of it. The Bible teaches that, that the problem with our world is both sin nature and the enemy who is opposing God. Satan, who, who, is, who is trying to control the kingdoms of the world to be opposed to God. So there's these fundamental problems of sin nature and the enemy that ultimately these great endeavors aren't overcoming. The Bible describes our human experience, I think, better than any other description of our human experience. That, that we, at the root in our hearts, have a need, have something that needs to be overcome. So, so keep that in mind as, as those two things, sin and Satan, have caused our world to be broken. This brokenness that we talked about, uh, there, there is a cause to it. And can that be overcome? Can we overcome that in our own strength? Can we overcome it in these great endeavors? I would say no. And that's, that's exactly what the Bible teaches, that, that these things will not ultimately overcome the problems that we each face deep down. So, the next question I have for you is, uh, so do you, do you need an overcomer? I would argue, yes, we do. Do we need an overcomer corporately? The next question, how did Jesus overcome? As I said already, I know you guys know the outcome. I know you guys know we're here to celebrate the resurrection. But I think it's, it's important today to consider the how of, of why did God do this the way he did and what meaning does that have to us today? How many of you have heard or, or said the phrase, it's not my problem. <laughs> Come on, be honest. It's not my problem. Today, who said it this morning? <laughs> it's not my problem. What, is, what are we saying when we say that phrase? 
We're saying more than that, aren't we? We're saying it's not my problem and I don't need to do anything about it because it's not my problem, right? I'm with you guys. I've said it very recently. Jesus overcame in the opposite spirit of that, that statement. It's not my problem. No, Jesus decided to take on a problem that was not his own. He saw the situation that man had rebelled against God and that Satan had rebelled against him and is now fighting against him and causing man to rebel against God as well. And Jesus, seeing that, perhaps could have said, it's not my problem. Man has chosen this and, and the devil has chosen to do this. And, but that's not, how, that's not the character of God, is it? <laughs> That's not, thankfully, that is not how God works. Christ took on a problem that was not his own. He decided to come and to be the solution to the problem. Have you ever thought about, you know, why did God do it this way? Why did he send Jesus? Why, you know, couldn't, if he's God, couldn't he just snap his fingers and just everything would, everything bad would just dissolve away and everything good would remain, right? Couldn't, couldn't he, couldn't he do that if he's really all powerful? Yeah? I think so. So, so I think there's a reason why he did things the way he did. Um, It wasn't just about winning, but it was about redeeming. God surely could have just won if he wanted to. He could have been the the conqueror, uh, victor. I win. (laughs) But what did he do? He chose to come and redeem us and to involve us as participants. Uh, James mentioned it last week when he was preaching. He said that the compelling thing about the story of God is not the outcome of the story, but the fact that he involves us in the story when he didn't have to, in a sense, you know? That, that he's involving us as participants and that he's got this, this plan that, that is loving and kind and redemptive. Okay, so we're going to look at the story a bit now. We're going to be in the book of John. So if you want to turn your Bibles or phones to the book of John, uh, we will be, uh, we're going to skip around a little bit, but we're going to be in John uh, chapter 18 and 19 mostly. Um, so are you guys with me? I, I think it's important that we look at how did, how did Christ choose to do this? How did God choose to do this? And what does that mean to me? Uh, before we read in, in, in John chapter 18, I just want to catch us up with a little context of what's been going on in Israel. Um, There's an amazing uh, story in John chapter 11 where a friend of Jesus is sick. Who can name this man? Lazarus. He's he's sick. And Mary and Martha know that this sickness is very serious and they're afraid that Lazarus will die. And so they take their brokenness, this situation, right? And they, they bring it to Jesus. It says they sent for Jesus. And as the story goes, we're not going to read it. I'm not going to tell the whole thing. But Lazarus does indeed die before Christ gets there. Christ arrives, and, and what does he do? Anybody? <laughs> he raises Lazarus from the dead. He raises Lazarus from the dead. Before he did that, he said to the ladies, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, Though he die, yet shall he live. Jesus promises, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. 
and he raises Lazarus from the dead. And people are shocked. <laughs> and people believe in Christ. And some other people get really angry about this. Okay, so the passage just after Lazarus, you have this, uh, the leaders of the day, the religious uh, leaders of Israel come together and they say this in John eleven forty eight. You don't need to turn there, I'll read it for you. They say, if we let him go on like this, if we let Christ go on uh, healing and delivering people, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And then in 53 it says, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So from that day on, this decision had been made to kill Jesus. I'm just giving you a little bit of the backstory of the crucifixion. Okay, so now we come to John chapter 18. And we're going to read in verse uh, from 33. John chapter 18, verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. And the the story goes on and talks about this this dilemma that Pilate has. He says, I find no fault in him, but the the Jewish people are, are wanting Christ to be condemned. And I'm not going to read the whole passage, but we go through 19. Let's skip down to verse 12 of chapter 19. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in the Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold, your king! They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. It's an incredible situation that from... This, going from this man who, who was healing people, who raised someone from the dead, who was, who was doing good, is now a criminal to the eyes of the leaders of the world. And it's, it's just a strange thing to think about. How did this come about? Why did this happen? Why were, why were people so opposed to 
this, uh, this Christ, this Jesus who had come. And in many ways, Christ perhaps didn't fit the, the bill for what, what they were looking for, right? The Jews had heard the promises of the overcomer. They'd heard the promises of the Savior, right? But it, it, it's clear that they don't think Christ is, this, is, this, is the man. And so I, want you, I want, to think, want you to think for a second about why, why did these powers want to kill Christ? Why did the Jews want, want him dead? Why did, why did the Romans want to kill him? Pilate, Pilate uh, eventually gives in. He's, they, the, the Jews tell him, you know, uh, if you don't do something about this, you know, Caesar's not going to be happy. <laughs> if, if anyone else is set up as a king, then uh, surely, you know, your boss is going to be a little upset about this. Um, so, so think about it for a second, these powers. And then, and then Satan. Think about Satan and why does he want to kill Christ? And so I just briefly want to talk about these three, these three groups, these three powers of the day and, and what, they, what they were uh, wanting to do in killing Christ. So the Jews were expecting a political uh, king who would overthrow Rome, right? Rome was the ruling power of the day, uh, governmentally, and, and the Jews still had their place, as we saw in, in chapter 11, their place in their nation, um, but they were afraid of losing those things. They feared that if Christ was seen... As a king, everyone would believe in him. And then Rome would say, whoa, whoa, what's going on with this? This insurrection here. What's this uprising? What is this new kingdom that's being established? And Rome would come in and snuff it out, right? So the Jews feared losing their temple. They feared losing their nation because uh, of, of the contrary nature to which Christ came. The Romans viewed him as a threat to their kingdom. They charged him as a criminal, right? An insurrectionist. And Satan wanted to kill Jesus because he was afraid of losing what he had. His dominion over the, the, the ruling of the world, as, as the Bible puts it. And so it was his last ditch effort to try to win. <laughs> maybe if I, can kill, if I can kill Christ, you know, maybe this kingdom will be over. So the attempt of killing Christ is this attempt by all people involved of snuffing out this kingdom. The story goes on in chapter 19. Christ is indeed crucified. In the end of chapter 19, he is buried in the ground. And then it brings us to chapter 20. Chapter 20, the resurrection. Chapter 20, verse 1. I'm going to read right there. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have lain him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping in to look, he saw linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. I'm going to stop reading there. Even the disciples of Christ didn't fully understand this yet, what was going on. 
And perhaps they also thought that Christ's death was the end of his kingdom. Surely there were doubts. Surely there were fears in their hearts that, that long weekend where their king was dead. And everybody likely thought that this kingdom was over. But what do we find in the story of the resurrection? We find that the kingdom has just begun. The very acts of killing him and trying to end his kingdom were the very acts that began the true kingdom of God, the resurrection life kingdom of God. This is the new kingdom. This is the way God works. He is so opposite to what you would expect, right? It's so upside down from all the expectations of the people of the day that they didn't even get it until the resurrection, the fulfillment. Oh yeah, Jesus, he, taught, he said something about that. <laughs> that he was going to rise again. And all the attempts of man and the enemy to snuff the kingdom out only burst the new and great kingdom by which life could come to all. It's a beautiful thing. It's an amazing thing. Christ came with a totally different idea. A totally different kingdom. He overcame in a totally different way than anyone expected. Jesus won by losing. Jesus took up the cross and not the sword. Jesus used love to dismantle hostility. Jesus served those who didn't deserve it. Jesus bled for others rather than making others bleed. And Jesus demonstrated in the most vivid way possible the contrary nature of God's kingdom in the cross. Remember what the scripture says, that Christ came as the image of the invisible God. He came to show in bodily form, in in physical, you can look at this guy and see it, He came to be the image of God. This is part of that image. This is essential to that image, that he's saying, hey, all the ways that the the world works with strife and and, and lording over each other and, and violence and all this stuff, he turns it all on its head. And he says, this is what it's all about. This is the new, is, is my kingdom. Think about this for a second. If a conqueror conquers a people uh, and, you know, maybe they become part of his nation or whatever, uh, usually a conqueror will only keep someone around as long as they're worth something to him, right? And if you're not worth something anymore, you can move on, you know, that he can move on from that. But Christ did the opposite. Yes, he's the conqueror, but he came in a way that gives worth to others, not just tries to take all the worth, in a sense. Yes, God, we, God wants us to worship him, and I get that. But God, through his love, is giving worth. Think about love for a second. Love says to someone, you're worth something to me. You're worth something to me. I'm going to act or speak in this way because you are worth something to me. And I love you. And that's, that's the motivation of this. I, I was just blown away this week thinking about John 3.16. 
The verse that you've probably all heard before, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, will have everlasting life. I think that God's love motivated sending Christ and the way he sent Christ, the way he instituted his kingdom to show incredible worth to you. <laughs> love always shows worth. And, and like I was saying earlier, perhaps there could have been a more expedient way of doing this, you know, zapping things and just, oh, I win, right? <laughs> like, why did it need to take all this time and all this, this story, all, you know? Couldn't there have been a, a simpler way? Well, probably. But is that the best way? Is that the, the beautiful way that this is, the rich and deep way that this is? Where God so loved the world that he gave his image of himself to die on our behalf, to take on the punishment that we rightly deserved. It's an amazing, amazing way of winning. Love always gives worth. It was love that motivated God to overcome in the way that he did. So how did Jesus overcome He overcame in love. He overcame by choosing the cross, laying himself down for us. The third question that I want to ask today is, what is your response to Jesus? How many of you guys like live music? Uh, I mean, hopefully you do. You were here this morning and nobody that I saw walked out, but... um, uh, about a month ago, Jamie and I, my wife and I, went to uh, the Green Mill to listen to some jazz. How many of you guys have been to the Green Mill? Okay. Awesome place, right? And awesome music. So good. So I remember sitting there, and we were, we were thinking, just like, I was looking around the room, and it was like people couldn't help it but respond in some way to the music. They were nodding their heads, and there were times in the songs people were shouting things out. Yes, that's good, and stuff like that. You know, they, were, they were responding vocally to the music, okay? And people tapping their feet, you know? Man, they could not help it but respond. I felt the same way. We, I was just like drawn into the music. It was so good. It was so good. I think that's one of the reasons why Christ overcame in the way that he did. It's because... It just begs our response to him. When we realize this deep love that decided to to win in this way, with this deep love, it's just like, wow. (laughs) It's like that 10-year-old boy I mentioned in the beginning. Did you see how this happened in this superhero movie, right? That's what we do. (laughs) Did you see how Christ did this? Have you heard... (laughs) That, this, that true life is available to you because of this. This is our response. Today, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. It is the crux of the matter. It is the linchpin of Christianity. It's the proof of the overcomer. It is the power over death. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, talks about the resurrection. And he says, this is what it's all about. 
If Christ is not raised, then we are still in our sins. But hallelujah, he is risen. He rose again. Paul goes on to talk about after Christ was raised, how he appeared to many people, appeared to Paul himself, and over 500 people witnessed the risen Christ. So I believe today this story demands our response. I think there are two responses that we can have today in our hearts. The first is belief. Believe. I know that many of you do believe this story. And you can be, believe again, you can be renewed in that faith in Christ. But maybe there's, there's people here who have never believed in Christ. Who have never put their faith in this kind of an overcomer. Maybe we're still trying to do it our way and trying to make the world a better place, and trying to to solve these problems that we face on our own. Maybe today, you can lay that down and come to Christ, who is the true overcomer, the one who overcame in love, the one who overcame by grace. That there is nothing that you need to give into the equation. You know, most other... I I always always like to think about grace and faith as... as, uh, the great equalizer among humanity. At the foot of the cross, the ground is level, right? We don't come with anything. We all come in the same way. So no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, and and how difficult or challenging your life has been, you can believe. Belief is a thing we can all do. We can all receive the gift that God has given. It is a gift. It is by grace. And he is wanting to give it to you today. If there's anyone who has not, who's not believed in Christ, I want to invite you to do so today. I want to invite you to call out to him, even right now where you're at, and just speak to him. And just say, Christ, I want to be a part of this kingdom. I want to be a part of this new life that only you can give. And I receive you, Jesus as my Savior. If there's anyone today who, who has now believed this or wants to talk to one of us about what it means to believe this, please come talk to myself or one of the ministry team afterwards. But I invite you to believe today. Also, if anyone else has, if you have further questions, I've got two uh, books here that I'd love to give to any of you. Uh, the Case for Faith and The Case for Christ. If any of you would like one of those books, please come. It's yours. Um, The second response to Jesus today, so believe and worship, okay? This is what we do when we we have this revelation of Christ. The one who overcome, the only one who could overcome in this way. We worship him. We respond to him and we say, you are this great king, God. This is the type of kingdom that I want to be a part of, of love, of service, of self-sacrifice. This is the beauty of Christ's kingdom. I love the scripture that says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This should cause our hearts to respond in worship. And now we go forward as image bearers of Christ. God has asked us to take up that image, to take up that same image, to take up that cross, that love, that self-sacrificial living. And now we represent it to others, right? This is our calling now, 
to those who believe, to worship him and to be his image bearers. And so we take up that very same image as we go, the cross of love and the power of the resurrection. So we're going to transition now into a time of communion, just as as one way that we can respond today. And uh, in a moment, the worship team is going to play some more music. We're going to, we are going to worship in song together again. But let's think of worship, you know, broader, more broadly than that. We worship with our lives. We do worship in our song. And we're going to worship as well by taking communion this morning. So uh, what we're going to do is I just want to invite you guys to come and, and take the elements and return to your seats. And we will all uh, partake together this morning. But let's do this as an act of worship of our risen Savior, Jesus. As I said already, I, I feel like today we respond to the, overcome, the overcomer who came in love and came to give worth through that love. And so let's take a moment as we hold the elements, the bread, the cup, and let's just thank God for his love. Thank him for the way that he chose to love us, the way that he chose to take on our problems, the problem that was not his own, and to come and be the image of God, and to show us how deep his love is, to show us how good his kingdom is. I believe when we have a revelation of the good king and the good kingdom, there's nothing, nothing else we'd rather do but but be a part of that, that type of reign, that type of rule, that type of kingdom. And that's what, that's, that's what you're invited to today. So in a moment, we're going to sing again some songs of worship. But right now, um, I'll lead us through taking the elements. Christ, when Christ, uh, when, the, when, he, when the Last Supper happened, he said that we do this to do this in remembrance of him. So today, as we, as we eat this bread, we think on the body of Christ that was broken for us. The, the lamb who was slain, who took on our brokenness to make it right. So Christ, we thank you and we worship you today. And we take this bread in remembrance of you. When Christ took the cup, he said, this is my blood that is shed. It's the blood that he shed for us. This represents uh, the blood of Christ, the only way that our sins could be atoned for. And so today, as we drink the cup, let's do this in thankfulness and praise and remembrance of Christ. So God, we just want to say thank you. We just want to respond to you in belief and in worship today. We love you, Lord God. Thank you. We thank you that you are the overcomer. We thank you for the way in which you overcame. 
the deep, deep love that you've shown so clearly for us. We thank you, God, and we worship you. Amen.